0: Um, you know, I've been to the MV campus a number of times, actually. I, I used to come here pretty regularly on Sunday mornings and help out with different things, and I haven't been for a while, but this is the first time that I've taught here, and it's kind of like the first time you meet somebody, and there's like this awkward thing uh, on their face, and you're kind of just like, okay, don't, don't look at the wall. Don't look at the wall. Don't, don't look at the wall. Don't look at the wall. Uh, but it's, uh, it's good to be here. Uh, in all seriousness, I knew you guys were uh, having construction, and so um, this morning, uh, I decided to wear the brightest shirt I could possibly find. Uh, and I asked my wife, on a scale of one to Caltrans, where does this fall in that line? And she said not to wear it. And so I took that as a yes. Uh, but uh, I'm, I'm seriously so grateful to be here with you guys. Uh, my name is Chris, like Jordan said. And um, I, uh, my family uh, is incredibly important to me. And you're going to hear a little bit more about them Uh, later on. But I've got some pictures. Um, I've got a wife and two kids. Uh, That's my wife, Esmeralda, and my son, Mason, who is four. And that was uh, the day we got home from the NICU. Our baby, uh, our newest son, Arlo, was born two months premature. And that's the day we got home. And uh, there's another picture here proving how happy uh, my, my oldest son is to be a big brother now. And you know, there's a, a piece of family that, um, you know, it's, it's so special when you have one kid, and it's so hard when you have two, uh, and I'm learning that more and more every single day, uh, but... Like Jordan said, my, my role at Mariners is as the story curator, which is a title I've searched all over the world, and nobody else has that title. So I, I get to make up my own job description, essentially. But I, I do get to help people discover and tell the stories of what God is doing in their life. And I figured, what better way to know if I am successful at my job, if I can teach my four-year-old to tell stories, right? I mean, if you can teach a four-year-old to tell a story, then you you're pretty good as a parent. I think maybe I thought maybe it would you know do well for me in my job. So I've got a video of, of how that went. Uh, if we can play that video. Okay. Go ahead, dude. What the time the little bear and up the tree and and he died. That's Who's good. next? <laughs> so sweet. Just a sweet, innocent little child. Once upon a time, there's a little bear. He climbs up the tree and he dies. Who's next? Who's next to tell the story of God's goodness in their life and their heart? Uh, stories are powerful things. Um, stories give us direction, they help us know what to feel. They help sometimes put words to things that we feel inside of our hearts. Uh, Stories guide us. Stories help us know that we're not the only one. C.S. Lewis said, we read to know that we are not alone. We read to know that we're not alone. There's something about knowing that you're not the only one that, that satisfies us, that makes us feel like we can make it another day. Stories are powerful things. And we've been in this series, Oh, the Places We'll Go, which is obviously a throw to the Dr. Seuss book. But we've been looking at these stories in Scripture, Stories of different people, different lives, of the journey that they've been on. Sometimes the world throws things at them, and sometimes God has a path for them that they have no idea what's coming. But as we look at these stories, we're trying to learn from these people to know that we're not alone. We're not the only ones that face difficulties. We're not the only ones that think that God is giving us things that we can't handle or, or, or whatever that looks like. We're not the only ones. And this morning, uh, we're going to be looking at the story of Joseph. Uh, If you guys have your outline, um, we're going to, most of the verses and things that we're going to be reading are right there. Hopefully you guys all have your outline with you. Uh, But I want to open up uh, in Genesis 37 and read a little bit of Joseph's story. Uh, In my family, there was four kids. The oldest was a a girl, my oldest sister, Kara, uh, and then there was three sons, and I was the middle son. Uh, and I don't know if there's any other middle kids in the room, middle children. Uh, As I was getting ready for this, I saw um, this sign. And uh, it was like one of these signs you hang up in your house. And it said, the oldest child makes the rules. The middle child is the reason we have the rules. And the youngest child pays no attention to the rules. Uh, And uh, we're stopping at two in my family. So hopefully we don't end up with somebody that just doesn't pay attention. But the story of Joseph, he's got 10 older brothers. He's the the dorky little brother. And uh, it's, 13 chapters in the book of Genesis and I promise we won't go through all of it today, but we're going to jump around. I want to read a little bit in Genesis 37, uh, starting in verse three. If you guys have your Bibles, you can read it. It'll also be on the screens. Genesis 37, three, it says, now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf arose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and because of what he said. Now, again, if you guys have older siblings, especially if you have older brothers, I mean, your, your little brother coming up and kind of presenting this dream to you has got to be like, uh, yeah, I don't think so. This is not happening. Uh, and you know, for those of us that have older siblings, we know the the tension that that can create, and this is much more than just sibling rivalry. This gets incredibly serious. Later on in 37, uh, verse 18, uh, Joseph went to find his brothers. His father sent him, and it says, Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan, but they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Now, come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. I mean, this is much more serious than sibling rivalry. This is much more serious than being annoyed with your little brother. This is, I mean, there is hatred. There is hatred for him. There's hatred for what he said to them that would happen. And Joseph, I mean, he didn't handle everything the right way. But if you guys are familiar with the story, most of the time we hear about this multicolored, this technicolored coat that his father gave him. But if you guys are familiar with the story, you know what happens is one of the brothers decides, he's the good brother. He says, let's not, guys, we can't kill him. Let's just sell him into slavery. That's the good brother. So they sell him into slavery. He ends up in the house of a man named Potiphar. And he rises quickly through the ranks. And ultimately, because of the kind of man that Joseph becomes, he becomes Potiphar's second in command. And then Potiphar's wife really decides that she likes Joseph also for totally different reasons. And she tries to seduce him. And Joseph says, no, no, no. And eventually, she accuses him, uh, she accuses him that he had raped her. And Potiphar, obviously angry, throws him in prison again. He finds himself back forgotten, in a prison, in a tank, forgotten, pushed away. And a few years later, the pharaoh of Egypt is having these dreams that none of his wisest men can decipher. And finally, somebody says, I think there's a man that is able to to understand dreams in this prison. And so he calls him, and Joseph ends up being able to to interpret these dreams for, for the pharaoh. These dreams... Our dreams that there's going to be seven years of abundance, of food, of, of, of wealth, of, of growing, of harvesting, and then it's going to be followed by seven years of, of nothing. Seven years of, of desolation. Desolation. And he explains this dream, uh, and Pharaoh is so impressed that Pharaoh ends up putting him in second command. But as we look at this story, and we're going to hit some of these notes a little bit later, but we all have these expectations. In our lives, we have expectations. In our vacations, we have expectations. In our marriages, we have expectations. Joseph wasn't any different. If you look on your outline, there's expectations versus reality. God gives him a dream. God gave him a clear dream, a vision. God said, here is what's going to happen. Now, if God gave you a dream, you would expect that that's going to come true in the way that whatever your mind thinks. God gives him a dream. He's the favorite child on top of that. Out of all of his brothers, he's the favorite child. His dad, in giving him this coat, basically signifies you are going to be the one that gets the inheritance. He's the favorite child. He was godly and strong in character, and we see that with Potiphar's wife. He didn't bend. He didn't break. He stood up. He did what was right. And then the fourth one there in the expectations column is that he does good for others, and so why wouldn't others do good for me? When he was in prison, he interpreted these dreams for these two men. He helped them, and ultimately, he's like, obviously, they're going to you know remember me when you find your freedom, and it says when they got out of prison that they forgot him. So we have these expectations of, if I do the right thing, other people will do the right thing too. God, if he gives me a dream, you know, what can be more clear than giving me clear direction, vision? I'm the favorite child. I'm going to get the inheritance. I'm godly. I'm strong in character. But the, the reality is that it took 13 years for his dream to even begin to be realized. It took 13 years. He was hated by his brothers. Godliness does not equal clear skies. Godliness does not equal an easy road. And there is no guarantee that your good deeds will be returned in kind. We have these expectations. We have these assumptions based off of what we know, what we've been told, what we've planned for, what we've paid for. But the reality, oftentimes, is so far from what actually happens. It's so far off base. So what do we do when life takes this hard right turn? When you save and you work and you plan and you prepare, what do you do when your finances fall apart? What do you do when you have these hopes and a dream for your family and your family falls apart? What do you do when you you read your Bible every day and you pray and you worship and not just on Sundays when there's somebody that sings a few songs at the beginning, but you worship all week long and somehow it ends up feeling like God has forgotten you. When your expectations don't meet up to reality, what do you do? As we look at Joseph's journey, there's lots of things we can learn about the way that God guided him through times of pain and joy. And I want to look at three lessons today, three quick lessons from Joseph's life. And you guys can follow along in your outline. The first lesson I want to look at from Joseph's life, when expectations don't meet up to reality, the first lesson is that Joseph honored God at all times. Joseph honored God at all times. In Genesis thirty-nine, verse four, this is on your outline. It says Joseph found favor in his eyes. His eyes meaning Potiphar's eyes, and Potiphar put him in charge of his household. He entrusted to his care everything he owned. Now remember, this is after Joseph was sold into slavery, sent off into Egypt to this man. He finds favor, and Potiphar puts him in charge of everything that he owns. In verse 6, it says that Potiphar concerned himself with nothing except the food he ate. That's a good spot to be in. If you're in charge, and all you have to worry about is the food that you're going to eat, because you have somebody that's taking care of everything, that's doing such a good job, the way they work the way they lead, the way they care for, is done so well. He was concerned with nothing except the food that he ate. Joseph honored God in the way that he worked. He honored God in the way that he stood for Potiphar, in the way that he cared for that household, in the way that he led there. And then again, uh, in verse 39, after Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him, he says, how could I sin against God? So, he's not only honoring God in the way that he's working, but in the way that he's living. I mean, he's got full control over everything, and he's got this temptation that comes. How could I sin against God? Honoring God at all times. And in Genesis 41, another verse there on your outline. This is after he stands before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, He pulls him out of prison. He's been in prison. He's been forgotten. He's been through the ringer at this point. He pulls him out of prison, and Pharaoh says to him, I'm told that you can decipher dreams. And Joseph says, I cannot do it. But God will give Pharaoh the answer he deserves, the answer he desires. I mean, I can't imagine this sense of being in prison for years and years and being forgotten and lied to and falsely accused. And finally, you're standing in front of the most powerful person in the world at this point. And they say, I'm heard that you can do good things for me and saying, I can't, but God can. He didn't say, I sure can, how can I help you, sir? He didn't say, absolutely, let's figure this out together. He didn't say, I am smarter than the rest of the people that you've asked. He said, I cannot, but God can. In all these situations, Joseph honored God at all times. When the expectations didn't meet up with the reality, he honored God. When he had an opportunity to be lifted up, he honored God. When he was down in the pit and forgotten, He honored God at all times. Some of us are good at honoring God when things aren't going well, when things are struggling. You know, we find ourselves at this place of relying only on God, of praying, of of worshiping, of, of saying, God, please, God, I trust. God, I will never do this again. God, I will whatever. Please help. Please, please. Some of us, and that's me. When things are falling apart, I find myself on my knees faster than any other time. And when things are going well, it becomes kind of an afterthought. It's not intentional, but there's a sense that I'm doing all right. All right, I'm, I'm doing okay. And God becomes an afterthought. And then there's other people. There's other people that it's the opposite. When things are going well, We have nothing but praise for God, and when things start to fall apart and crack and crumble around us, we get angry. God, why are you doing this to me? Have I not committed my life to you? Have I not tithed every week? Have I not read my Bible? Have I not tried to raise my family the right way? Have I not? Have I not? Have I not? You owe me. Why would you do this to me? Joseph honored God at all times, and for us, we have to ask ourselves, what. What is our tendency? We have to be aware of that. We have to be aware of our own tendency. What do people believe about God because of the way that you live in the forgotten place? When you are in the pit, when you are in prison, enslaved, lied to, falsely accused, what do people believe about God because of the way that you live in that space? At the same time, when you are on the mountaintop and everything is, everything is going your way, what do people believe about God because of the way that you celebrate, because of the way that you're joyful, because of the way that you have enough? What do you do when you have enough? What do you do when you have more than enough? How do, how do you honor God at all times? These are the questions we have to ask ourselves. As we learn to follow the path that God's given us, the second lesson in the story of Joseph on your outline. The second lesson is that Joseph found the blessing in the suffering. Joseph found the blessing in the suffering. After Joseph was in Egypt a number of years, he ended up having two sons. And the first son he named Manasseh. And he said, because God has made me forget all my trouble and all of my father's household. And the second son he named Ephraim because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. And this is just two verses in this 13 chapters of story, but I think that this is such an incredible picture of the person that Joseph was and the way that he navigated, his expectations not meeting up with reality. He says, God has made me forget my father's household. He was the heir to his father's house. He had 10 older brothers. He should have been way back in line, but he was the heir to his father's house. And so to forget his father's household, to embrace the place that God had brought him to and not rage against it because he deserved something more or because he deserved something else. He says, I've forgotten my father's household, what I was promised, what I was owed, what I deserved. I've forgotten that. I've let that go. And the second son, Manasseh or Ephraim, he says, God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Instead of choosing bitterness, regarding being sold and enslaved and imprisoned and losing all of his rights, Joseph chose to see the blessings that God had given him. He held on to the truth of God's goodness and the reality of his pain, which I think we oftentimes think that those are mutually exclusive. We struggle with this idea of if I'm experiencing pain, if everything's falling apart, if I've lost a loved one, if I've been treated unfairly or poorly, then we question God's goodness. But God's goodness is not tied to our circumstances at all. God's goodness is the rock that we hold on to in the middle of our circumstances when things are bad and when things are good. Joseph found the blessing in the suffering. Sometimes the blessing is literal, like Joseph's sons literally had these two sons that were a blessing to him. And sometimes the blessing is the refinement of the process itself. And I think that we need to hold on to that. And I think a lot of us that have been Christians and grown up in church, we know that in our heads, but when we're in the middle of it, we forget it. Sometimes the blessing is the refinement of the process itself, the pain that chisels away at us to create us into who God is calling us to be. James, a verse, a couple of verses that we're so familiar with says, consider it pure joy, My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, and let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And there's a lot of great verses in the scripture. There's so many great Bible verses. We've got, I've come to give you life and life to the full. I'm with you even to the end of the age. I know the plans I have for you, plans of hope to prosper, taste, and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. If God is for us, who can be against us? Neither death or life or angels or principalities. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And consider it pure joy when you face trials of any kind. This is not the fun one to hold on to. This is not the easy one to respond to. This is the struggle. This is the battle. Consider it pure joy. Find the blessing in the suffering. Have you looked for the fruit in the land of your suffering? Some of you today are in a difficult place. Have you looked for the blessing in the suffering? It's there. I promise it's there. It took Joseph 13 years before he started seeing God's promises come true. 13 years. But the reality is that I know it can be easy to look at Joseph's life and his journey as history, because we know how it ends, right? We can look back and say, yeah, it's easy. Just have hope, because it ended okay. You ended up in a pretty decent spot. You got what, you know, God's... Vision, God's dream, it came true. But in the middle of it, which is where some of us find ourselves today, in the middle of it, we have no idea how it's going to end. In the middle of it, all we can see is the pain and all we can feel is forgotten. So what about those of us that are in the middle of it? Because we don't have the luxury of knowing the end. The third piece of Joseph's journey And the piece that I think speaks to those of us that are in the middle of it. Just by show of hands. How many of you feel like you're in the middle of it today? So this is for us. And the rest of you guys, don't talk to me, don't smile at me. Joseph trusted in God's vision, not his own. We can see everything that's happening around us. But how many of us know that so much more is happening than what we can see? We know the ways we've been hurt. We can list them. We can give names. But how many of us know that God's vision is different than ours? That God doesn't work the way that we work? Joseph trusted in God's vision, not his own. When Pharaoh had these dreams... He called Joseph from the prisons. He had heard there's this man that can decipher dreams. He calls him from the prison. He says, bring him to me immediately. And Joseph was able to decipher what these dreams meant. Pharaoh was so impressed. He, I mean, if you're the man in charge, if you're Pharaoh over all of Egypt, you have to have an endless number of counselors and wisdom and elders and people around you that know things. And he found a person in prison That was able to explain these dreams that nobody else could. And Pharaoh trusts him so much and sees how, sees what kind of man that Joseph is, and he puts him second in command over all of Egypt and responsible for preparing in the seven years of plenty for the seven years of drought, for the seven years of famine. So famine breaks out, people come from all over, it's not just in Egypt. Joseph has been saving and storing and preparing. Seven years later, famine breaks out. People come from all over, including Joseph's brothers. And they throw themselves at the feet of this ruler that they don't recognize. And when Joseph finally reveals who he is to his brothers, they are terrified, as any older brother should be when your little brother has the upper hand. They are terrified when they realize this is the one that we wanted to kill But we ended up just selling into slavery. He is now the one that not only controls our lives, but the lives of all of Egypt and all of the lands around. Because there is a famine, there is nothing, and we will die if he does not give us food. Joseph responds in the most amazing way after he reveals himself to them. And you guys see these verses on your outline. Joseph says, God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Not, I've come to terms with you guys screwing me over. Not, I can't believe you did this. Look who's in charge now. But God sent me ahead of you. That's a totally different perspective. That's a totally different vantage point. God sent me ahead of you to preserve for a remnant on earth and save your lives by a great deliverance. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Not what is now being done, me getting to say, ha ha, my dream was true, but look at all that God is using me to do because you sold me into slavery. He sent me ahead of you for the saving of many lives. This perspective is not Joseph's vision. This is the realization that God has a vision. God can see more than we can see, and God will prepare, and God will plan. He's not surprised. Through Joseph's entire journey, through the highs and the lows, Joseph chose to trust God's vision, to trust that God had called him and put him on a path. In Psalms 32.8, it says, I, God, will guide you on the best pathway for your life. I will advise you and watch over you. It doesn't say the easiest pathway for your life or the one that you would prefer. It's the best pathway for your life. And I will guide you and advise you and watch over you. Joseph, he had a dream But he wasn't living in a fantasy world. I think a lot of us struggle holding on to, how do I acknowledge the pain and brokenness and at the same time believe that God is good? Believe in God's vision. Many Christians, myself included, oftentimes feel like we can only be happy We feel like when things are falling apart, we have to put a smile on our face and say, well, I know God's good, which is true, but we also can feel the pain, feel the difficulty, feel the hurt, and yes, God is good. This isn't about ignoring pain or pretending like things are easier than they are. It's choosing to trust that God in his infinite wisdom sees the whole story while we only see part of it. An author, Dan Allender, put it this way. He says, Joseph minimized neither his plight nor his suffering. And he was able to see both in the light of purposes greater than his own life. It is a faith that allows us to suffer and struggle, yet also rest in the confidence that a larger story is being told in and through our lives. Faith is the anchor that roots us to the bedrock of God's goodness amidst the tumult of unexplained suffering. He didn't ignore the pain. He didn't deny the pain. But he held on to the pain and and saw it in the light of something that was bigger. The saving of many lives is what he put. And in 2 Corinthians 4, it says, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. By default, we, we, we only want to hold on to the, the tangible. We only want to trust the tangible. That's our default setting. Have you guys... Uh, there's a term, it's a, a scholarly term called baby strength. Have you guys heard of baby strength? It's not a scholarly term. That was supposed to be a joke. <laughs> baby strength is when a 33-year-old man has a, a preemie baby, and you're trying to change their diaper, but somehow they can still kick their legs free of your giant man hands. Baby strength is when you have your four-year-old, and you're walking through a parking lot, and sometimes ta- he, like, judo maneuvers his hand out of yours and runs the other direction baby strength is a real thing first of all i need you guys support on this there's this piece of my kids especially my four-year-old who's just got all the questions right now and he never believes the answers that i give him And he always thinks that he has better information or where he wants to go is more important than where I'm going. And so we'll be in a parking lot and he'll pull his hand out and he'll just take off to where he wants to go, not even aware of what's happening around, not aware of the cars pulling out of their parking spaces, not aware of of anything except what he wants to do. And we do the same thing. We pull our hand straight out of our heavenly fathers because we see a shorter route a less painful route or because obviously he hasn't noticed how difficult our season is right now. So you know what? I'm going to pull my hand out of yours and I'm going to figure out how to manage the pain around me. I'm going to figure out how to get out of this situation. And we all struggle with trusting God's vision over our own. When uh, growing up, I remember the only thing I ever wanted growing up, was to be a rock star, which clearly happened, uh, and to have a family. It was it. I wanted to be a rock star, and I wanted to have a family. And I'll never forget the day uh, I was living in Des Moines, Iowa at the time, my own personal prison. That's a different story. And my wife was sitting across from me at the the dinner table, and she told me that she was pregnant with our, our son, Mason. And I will never forget that day. It felt like the the realization of all that I'd wanted in life. And equally, I'll never forget the day. A couple months later, we were sitting in the ER, and there was complications, and the the doctor said, if you haven't already miscarried the baby, you will in the next couple days. Um, Those memories are tied together forever for me the realization of what I wanted and dreamt of and and expected out of life with somebody telling me that this isn't going to happen. And it led to a journey, a difficult journey over months where nothing happened. She didn't miscarry. And then she ended up back in the hospital at 17 weeks. They hospitalized her, put her on bed rest. She laid on her back in bed for three months. There was one time that she sat in a wheelchair and we wheeled her outside so she could see the sun. Every day we did tests and ultrasounds, and every day the news was worse. And every day we lived with this understanding of this baby will either be born today and potentially die, or maybe it'll happen tomorrow. Every day was this waiting for this baby that was 18 weeks old, waiting for a baby that was 19 weeks old, waiting for a baby that was 20 weeks old, every day, every moment was lived in fear. And ultimately, I don't know how it happened. I do know how it happened. But ultimately, she went full term and our son Mason was born and the doctors and the specialists had no idea how it was possible because every day for the last 30 weeks, he was supposed to be born. We were supposed to miscarry. Things weren't supposed to go well. And one specialist came in a couple days after he was born, and she said, she was in tears, and she said, I've tried to keep a brave face this whole time, but if you know what I know, then you would know that this is a miracle. And I realized that not everybody gets the miracle that I got. And I don't know fully why God had us go on that journey, because it was... One of the most painful journeys I've ever been on. And maybe I'll never fully know, but I've gotten glimpses. And we have this idea of pain, of of fear, of what we're expecting, not meeting up with reality. We have these different things that come our way, and we try and slip our hands out. And in those moments, I started off believing, God, you're going to do something incredible. God, I believe that you can do a miracle. And every day and every week that followed, my faith lessened. And I could only trust on the people that were around us. I had to use their faith. I don't feel like praying, but yes, you can pray. Every day, every moment, it was a struggle and a battle to move forward. And we tend to have this black or white, good or bad, wrong or right, linear perspective of what is happening in our lives. Joseph was a favorite child. That's good. He had good character. That's good, but slavery is bad, and prison is bad. And so obviously, these things can't coexist, but God doesn't operate in the confines of time or space or linear. God's power works in and through, but also against human power. And I think we have to hold on to that, and I'm going to say it a couple more times. God's power works in and through, but also against human power. So God worked through... And in spite of Joseph's brothers, God worked through his brothers throwing him into slavery, and in spite of them throwing him into slavery, God worked, and this dream came true. God worked through and in spite of slavery. God worked through and in spite of prison. God worked through and in spite of famine. God worked through and in spite of Egypt and for us, can we believe that God will work through and in spite of your family falling apart? Could God work through and in spite of the loss of a job? Could God work through and in spite of bankruptcy, affairs, divorce, illness, cancer? Could God work through and in spite of that? Do we believe that today? Because that is ultimately the gospel. That is the gospel. That is the good news that God works through and in spite of Christ's death on a cross. Death, God works through and in spite of death to give us life. God takes our crooked paths, the pain that others have caused us, the mistakes that we have made, and he makes something even more beautiful than we could ever have imagined And I think that for us this morning, granted, most of us are probably Christians, and I believe that there's some people in here that are wrestling with what that means. But I think that we find ourselves in two different places this morning. In prison, forgotten, in a pit. And the question is, can we believe that God will work through and in spite of your current circumstances? that even tomorrow you could be lifted out of the pit. But if it's 13 years from now, that that's okay too. God works through and in spite of our circumstances. And if you find yourself in a place, a good spot, a a place of blessing, is your view of God married to how good your circumstances are? Is your view of God married to how good your circumstances are, to the way that you're feeling life around you? Does that define God's goodness? If it all comes crashing down tomorrow, could we choose, like Joseph did, to say that what the world means for evil, God means for good. That his vision, his purpose, and his path is greater than anything that you could find for yourself. So the band is going to come forward. And I believe this morning that there are some of us that are in a good place. And please don't feel guilty about that. But in our response this morning, you have the opportunity, if you're in a place of blessing, if, you are in, if you've been lifted up, if you're in a good space, you have the opportunity this morning to, to respond and worship and honor God for who he is, for where he's brought you to. Honoring God at all times, like Joseph did. And there's others of us that are in a pit. We're in a difficult place. We're, we're doubting and questioning, and we're afraid And we have fear and we don't know if God's gonna make good on his promises that we read in scripture, that he does have a plan and a purpose for our lives. And some of us need a reminder of that this morning, that God is a good father and his vision is so much better than ours. And some of us this morning are in a place that is so difficult and so broken. I think that you need to come forward And there will be a prayer team on either side here. And some of you need to be able to say, I am angry. I'm hurting. I'm struggling. I'm in pain. And we have a team of people that would love to pray for you and believe with you and just listen to what you say. And believe that God can work through and in spite of Whatever the obstacle is, whatever the pain is that you have experienced this week, this year, will you pray with me? God, there's no way to articulate with words the pain that some of us feel this morning. Uh, All of us have experienced pain And we will again in the future. But some of us this morning are in such a difficult place that words can't even do it justice. And so in these moments, God, we want to respond to you. For those of us that are ready to worship and be grateful and stand and honor you for the place that you've brought them, God, and for those of us that are broken and holding back tears that need to just say it out loud that I'm afraid, I don't know, I'm confused. And God, like... My four-year-old son pulls his hand out of mine. God, I believe that some of us pull our hands away from you. And so this morning, we come before you lifting our hands, saying, guide us, lead us. In Jesus' name. If you need prayer this morning, please come forward.